morning. So I'm glad Paul's coming today because uh, Jane, people are coming to lunch today and Jane toiled and laboured all night. I was a little bit idle, watched some football, but now I've read this passage, I can see that I can charge for lunch, so make sure you all bring some money. Okay, so we're reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you, that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts from God's love and Christ's perseverance. Direct your hearts into God's love. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teachings you received from us. For you yourselves know you ought to follow our example. We are not idle when we are with you, nor do we eat anybody's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labouring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some amongst you are idle. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. As for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Finally. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write these things, greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thanks, Simon. Uh, We'll have to have a special Simon Barber application section at the end of the talk, I think, uh, just to help Simon with his lunch plans. Today what we're thinking about, remember last week I set you some homework talking about the return of Jesus, I'm not going to get feedback on that, but the issue about the way in which the return of Jesus affects our lives has implications for the way in which we live. Today as we turn to this part of God's word, the particular focus I want to take is the way in which the return of Jesus affects our thinking about work, about Jobs, because I think that's squarely what comes up with a particular issue in the first century church. And so I'm going to pray that uh, God's word, which I think is extraordinarily relevant, will help us as we think about what he's got to say about our attitudes uh, towards our employment. It's relevant to us all. I I think even if you're uh, retired, unemployed or whatever, uh, the issue of payment's not the key issue. It's the question of how the return of Jesus affects what dominates your life. Okay, so it's, it's relevant to us all, whatever our stage and situation. But let me pray and we can reflect on it together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your great love and mercy towards us. And we pray that this uh, word, will, you'll get, help us to understand it. And then you'll help us to understand what it means uh, for each of our lives. And we pray it in your son's precious name. Amen. 
Uh, my father died a bit over 10 years ago now, and uh, I inherited his watch. Uh, engraved on the back uh, are these words, uh, 35 years service to the Commonwealth Banking Corporation. It is the classic gold watch for retirement. He got it for 35 years service to the one institution. Now, 50 years ago, that was common. People would start off in a job out of school or university, and the expectation was that they would continue in that sort of role in one way or another until they retired. Uh, these days, the social scientists who explore these things tell us that your average kid coming through high school may have five or ten career changes in their life. Not job changes, career changes. I mean, it's just an extraordinary way in which our society has evolved and changed in terms of the way in which it thinks and the way in which it operates. Most of us in life uh, have different aspirations as we go along. Uh, we think about what we'd like to do with our lives. When I was four years old, I wanted to be a fire engine. Uh, I didn't want to be you know, someone who attended fires. I wanted to be the fire engine. Okay, so I had a philosophical challenged uh, existence as a, a preschooler. You, you understand this. By the time I was 12, I was like most 12-year-old boys. I wanted to be a professional sportsman. And by the time I got to the end of high school, I had no idea what I wanted to be. Uh, like most kids coming out of high school these days as well. I think that's just the way in which life works. The old-fashioned way of talking about uh, vocation was the word calling. You know, the idea of what you're called to do in life. And when you turn to 1 and 2 Thessalonians, there's, there's a lot of instruction about calling. But what you discover is it's got nothing to do with a job. It's very interesting. Let me take you back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul there urged the Thessalonians to live lives worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. If you go to the end of that chapter, chapter 5, at uh, the end of that letter, chapter 5 and verse 24, again, he says, the one who calls you is faithful. Or well, back over the page of the Bibles we're reading to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 11, he's, he's really praying at this point that God may count you worthy of his calling. Calling. Now, here, the calling being talked about is not a, not a job. It's not carpenter, nurse, accountant, doctor, baker, candlestick maker. It's none of that sort of stuff. The calling that's on view here, by definition, is the idea of being a Christian, called into relationship with God and all that that means. Right? Now, you could try that out at a social function this week. You, know, you get into those conversations, don't you? And someone says to you, what do you do during the week? You can say, I'm a Christian, right? I'm not actually recommending this. People will think you're weird, right? So it's not a socially clever strategy to say that, but the mindset attached to it is the one that God and his word wants us to have. The dominant category for, for thinking about life and our day-to-day activity is the fact that we belong to God. Now, when we turn particularly to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, which we're going to be focusing on. There's an outline in the leaflet if that's useful to you, but the, uh, uh, the chapter we're looking at is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Uh, we're talking about calling and its relationship to a job. That is, there's information about what it means to be a Christian and the way in which you think about your work, and they're brought together 
in this one passage. And as I said before, don't think in terms of payment. Uh, don't think in terms of, you know, this is a relative, if I'm unemployed or retired or whatever. It, think about how your calling, being a Christian, affects your day-to-day activity and what you do. Calling affects those sort of things. So the, uh, uh, the next point in the leaflet, how does my calling affect my job? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, pray for us that the message, literally it's the word, uh, that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. Now I want to suggest to you that this task, the rapid spread of the word of the Lord, the message of the gospel, that is the task of every Christian person, every called person. This is your vocation in life to be about this task. That's at the core of it. Now you might say to me, oh, look, that's all very well for the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was an apostle called by Jesus on the Damascus Road, you know. And, uh, you know, he, that's what he did with his life. He went around studying churches and preaching and teaching. And it's all very well for, you know, you. We, you don't have to work. We just pay you so you do what you do. And Stephen and Mike and that sort of thing. So I get that that works for the full-time vocational professionals. Uh, but it's not the right sort of category for me. You know, if I'm not in the vocational full-time gospel ministry. I don't think that's true. Now let me tell you why. Uh, or let me ask you a question. Was Paul a full-time vocational gospel worker? A- and when you read this chapter, you know he wasn't. It's clear he was at least bivocational. Let me show you why. He, he did preach and teach back in two Thess- 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says this, We dared to tell you the gospel in spite of strong opposition. So he preaches the gospel, or in verse 8, that same chapter, he says, we share with you the gospel. So he is about that vocational sort of preaching, teaching role, but it looks like he held down a full-time job as well to pay his way. So you come to 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 and 8, and he says, we weren't idle when we were with you. We worked night and day, labouring and toiling, so we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. Most likely the tent-making occupation that he took up. So he's preaching, teaching the gospel, and then he's slaving his guts out to earn a living, so he's self-supporting. Now, you may come back to you know, me and Stephen and Mike and say, great strategy, actually. You, know? <laughs> you may think this is a leaf we should take out. But, but the point I'm wanting you to understand is that Paul here is, is bivocational. He works and earns his living, and he's about preaching the gospel. In other words, he's like you and me. Well, like you anyway. Do you you know what I mean? That is, that's the way in which he sees himself. Now, why is he doing that? Is Is he a workaholic? Or is he in the grip of some sort of materialism? You know, he was after that second chariot in the driveway or something like that. You know, why? Why does he slave his guts out like this? I want to suggest to you the reason that he earned his living, took up a job was because of his calling, okay? Because of his calling. Let me try and explain how that works. Paul said in the the first verse, what he's about and what he wants people to pray for him is that he'll be about the rapid spread of the word of the Lord. And he doesn't want anything to interfere with that. So he takes up a job to supply his own needs 
so that, verse 8, he wouldn't be a burden to anyone. Or verse 9, so he could model for others how to live. Uh, He doesn't want anything to get in the way of people hearing the gospel, the message of the Lord, so he works to remove that as a potential obstacle. First century situation, there are lots of guys like Paul, in the sense lots of professional speakers who went around to the different towns and they'd spruik their thing and put out the hat to get their money. Paul didn't want to be seen in that category, doing it to make money. He wanted people to see that he was generous with the gospel and would do it free of charge. That was his way of thinking. No obstacle. There's also an issue here for the Thessalonians who were confused about Jesus' return as we saw last week. Some were saying that he'd already returned and so they'd sort of put down tools. Said, well, if Jesus already returned, man, it's all winding up. No point in working. Let's take it easy. You know, there was confusion at that sort of point. So he wants to be a good model. Can I say, though, that Paul's model of behaviour is good for every single one of us? Most of us aren't privileged like I am to be set apart for full-time preaching, teaching and pastoral work. And I do count it an extraordinary privilege uh, that I'm able to do what I do, and it's only by the generosity of people around me. I'm very thankful for that. But most of you can't, can't do that. Most of us are, are bivocational. That is, we're Christians who have jobs. That's our situation. You are called ones with employment. But what I want to make very clear is that we mustn't let our jobs dominate our calling. Don't allow your work to dominate your calling. You want your calling to be what shapes your work. So let me talk about that for just a few minutes. As Christians, how should we think about uh, our jobs, our work? In 2 Thessalonians, uh, what we have here is one of the few spots in the New Testament where there's some concentrated teaching on the issue of how to think about work. It's a slightly different context, slightly different issues to what we we may be facing in this congregation, but nonetheless some very specific teaching. It's a young church confused about the return of Jesus. And as I say, it looks like it was causing some to say, well, you know, Jesus already returned or it's so imminent that, man, let's go and sit on the the lounge chairs by the beach, sipping drinks, waiting for him to, to roll up. You know, it's that sort of feel. Paul says, this is how you should think about work as you wait for Jesus to return, which is our situation. Firstly, don't be lazy. Uh, Verse 6, keep away from every brother who is idle and doesn't live according to the teaching that you receive from us. Uh, We are created to work. You go back to the early chapters of the Bible, first couple of chapters of Genesis, and you see the way in which God has wired us and instructed us to superintend his world on his behalf. You know, we have uh, instructions to do that. But we live in a world that's fallen. We know it's a world where things are broken because of sin. And you see that in all sorts of different ways. Uh, There are weeds in the garden. Like Sue and I were walking out to the front yard yesterday and I could see Sue hesitate and I said, yes, the lawn needs a mow, doesn't it? You know, (laughs) it is slightly too high. Uh, That is, and I find that I mow it 
and it grows again. It's a real pain. Uh, you know, it just keeps needing to be done. And that's the nature of life in this world. And not only that, the weeds grow twice as fast as the grass. Why is that, you know? How does that work? But that's the nature of living in the world in which we live. Weeds grow. Uh, when it comes to work, you can have overbearing and unreasonable bosses. Uh, you can have people who are greedy as customers. Uh, you can have self-centred clients. It's not all straightforward working. But Paul's instruction here is don't be lazy and avoid work. Now, again, let me just underline this. We're not talking about those who can't get work. Uh, We know that uh, unemployment in South Australia is quite a perennial problem that we have, and particularly among those who are young. We're not talking about that situation. We're talking about those who don't want to work or who refuse to work. That's the situation. But Paul says, I don't want you to be lazy, right? Now, in our culture, as you think about our context and our situation, especially as Christians, I don't think this is a big problem, really. That is, for most Christians, it's not the problem of laziness, it's a problem of overwork. That's the big issue, actually. But there can be issues of cutting corners because you're Christian, Uh, you could be someone who is so caught up in ministry at church that you're a nine-to-five clock watcher. You know, you sort of, you know, just I give my work time to the wedding, and then at five o'clock, boom, I'm out of here. Always the last to come and the first to go. If you're thinking about obstruction, hurdles for the gospel for non-Christians to hear, if they observe you being slack at work, not doing your bit and letting them down, this is probably not a great witness, you know, if you're about the rapid spread of the word of the Lord. So you do need to be careful not to cut corners in that sort of way. But I actually do think that our more common problem is the problem of overwork. Uh, In the Western world, Australia has the highest average working hours per week of any country. The land of the long weekend. Who would have thought it? But we actually work incredibly long hours and since the 70s, that number has been growing at a steady rate. It's levelled off this century, but we're still very, very high in terms of the number of hours that we work. And, and I think if we're allowed to, in 2 Thessalonians 3, be rebuking people for their laziness, it seems to me appropriate that we should rebuke people for overworking and for dedicating too much of their life to their jobs because they overvalue its importance. Now, again, it's not simple. That is, we all know, because a number of you will be saying, man, I'm under huge pressure in the workplace just to keep my job. People are getting sacked, and so I need to perform, and I need to put in the extra hours, otherwise I might not have a job. And I get the fact that it's not straightforward or simple at that point. And yet I still think you need to have the mindset in mind that your work mustn't dominate your calling. You also need to understand the limits of hard work. I think there used to be a prevailing Christian view that people would value you as a Christian because you worked hard. Maybe. But let's say you are the top salesperson in your company. right? Month after month after month, you come up with a top sales figure. Probably your boss won't come up to you and say, you have excellent sales figures, I perceive you are a worshipper of the Lord of heaven and earth. 
do you, do you get what I'm saying? It, the connection between those two things may not be obvious, which is why when Paul talks about the rapid spread of the word of the Lord, there needs to be a message of the gospel in there so people actually do get it. Now, you've got to be appropriate in work contexts about that, but unashamed about where you sit. And the way in which you work, your attitudes and behaviours in the work context, your hard-workingness, may well draw people to you and give you opportunities because they respect you and admire you. But there's still the need for clarity about the gospel going out. Second thing that comes up in this chapter is the... uh, Paul talks about a few of the motives for working. We've already touched on this, but look at it with me, verse 10 of chapter 3. Paul says, Even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. See, isn't this a great incentive for working? So you can eat. (laughs) And I take it, it's the necessities of life he's talking about, clothing, shelter, being able to eat. But, But for most of us, I think this is sort of a... A presumed thing where, you know, again, uh, one of the most obese nations on the planet, uh, food doesn't seem to be our biggest problem. You know, we're generally reasonably well padded. And so I think often when it comes to working extended hours, it's not so much for the necessities, but for the extras that dominate our thinking. It's the leisure activities or the holiday or the accumulation of more super or the house or the better house or the gym membership or, you, you know, the nice push bike with carbon wheels because you go faster. You know, look, there are all sorts of ways in which we, we are aspirational in terms of our thinking about life and what we use our funds for. Let me flip that. You might be in a situation where you're saying, well, that's not my problem because I'm really struggling to make ends meet. And if that's the case, let me just, a word of warning here, because when you're in that situation of doing it tough, often what you you have is aspirational goals. That is, you long to have more money because of what you would do with it, even though you don't have it now. Uh, There's a risk whichever way it goes. But it seems to me that work often is driven by the desire for more rather than the desires for the essentials. And one of the real problems when it comes to work and motivation is that our society is built on the fundamental premise that you measure people by what they do. And we're tempted to do that with ourselves because the whole society is saying that and therefore you are conscious of that in terms of the way in which you establish pecking orders. Uh, You know, it used to be much more... um, Actually, both careers I've had. I've done law and I'm a full-time minister. Whenever I introduced either into the conversation, it would get an interesting result. Uh, These days, saying I'm a minister, people don't know it, often produces a reaction. Normally, if I'm introducing that somewhere into the conversation, we have the rewind. Um, What have I said and how many swear words have I used in the last three minutes with this minister? You know, (laughs) there's that sort of self-censor thing that happens. Uh, uh, But it it is interesting. You know it in social contexts where where people... That's one of the early questions because we want to work out where we fit. Okay. It's got nothing. There's no place for that in the Christian context. Our identity is shaped by the fact we have a relationship with God through Jesus. I'm a child of the Heavenly Father, and who gives a fig what you do? 
So let me come back to the parenting conversation uh, that we had just a few minutes ago. Uh, If you as a parent communicate to your child that their success academically in order to get a good job is really important to you, and that competes with the messages they hear about what you're saying about serving Jesus, do you understand that you have unwittingly provided them with two gods that compete in that way? Because you're saying, this is incredibly important and I'm really happy for you to skip church and youth group and everything like that so you can study harder to get better results, to get a better job. Okay? So as a parent, what message are you communicating? Forget Jesus... Work's more important. Do you really want them to be an idolater (laughs) and serve this world and work rather than the living God? No way. I I think I was saying to Damien just beforehand, we're talking about kids and that sort of thing. Remember, one of my children, our our phrase was faithfulness, right, in terms of study and everything like that. Faithfulness, you've got God at the centre. He's given you a number of responsibilities. Be faithful as you do it. And, and at times you have to work out what that means for kids. So one of our kids was reasonably bright, but getting not quite so good results. And I said, you know, for you, faithfulness at university is at least a credit average, right? <laughs> because faithfulness means you actually look at the notes after you've nodded, jotted them down and perhaps dedicate a little bit of study time, you will get credits, if you only get passes, it's because you've forgotten to go to the, uh, the lectures and to think about them. Okay, so let's work out what faithfulness here is. You know? But generally, you want that to be self-motivated. But do you understand what I'm saying? How do you communicate that serving Jesus and being about the rapid spread of the word of the Lord is at the heart of your life as a household and it shapes everything else that you do? Think about the motives. Think about how it operates. And, uh, and keep working it out. Let me make some summary sort of thoughts about uh, these sort of issues we've been looking at, particularly that idea of calling and work. Firstly, don't confuse your calling and your work. Um, I, I do often hear Christians talking about the way in which God has called them to a particular job. Now, can I say the Bible does not use the language of calling in that way? It doesn't associate calling with particular areas of employment. Okay, that's just in terms of the New Testament. Now, you may then say to me, "Ah, Paul, you're just playing legal semantic, you know, word games with us, you know, that uh, we understand the Bible doesn't say that. But, you know, isn't this a fair way to actually talk? I I think actually it is something worth taking your, your leaf you know, your pointers from the Bible at this point and using the language of the Bible the same way. As I said, I did law. If I talk about the fact that God called me to be a lawyer, it actually makes the work of law more important than God says it is. See, if I say God's called me to be a lawyer, whew, that's an important thing I better fulfill here. You know? It's really important I'm a really good lawyer. I don't want to give God a bad name. You know? And you know, Law becomes too all-consuming at that point. It gets elevated to a place that it shouldn't have. So let me change the phrasing, because this is the way in which Christians then tend to use it. Okay, we put Christian on the front of our job. God has called me to be a Christian 
lawyer? Or, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian in front of your profession at that point? Now, again, there is a danger with that because you can associate your calling with your job in too tightly a connected way. So the illustration, sometimes people talk to me and they say, can you recommend a good Christian lawyer? And I'll say, do you want a good lawyer or a good Christian? You know, uh, Because some Christians who are law- lawyers aren't particularly good ones or don't work in the area you want. There's no offence to either my son or anyone else who practices law here. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? It's like if you're going to get brain surgery. Do you want a good Christian brain surgeon or do you want someone who's good at brain surgery? You know, I think I'm going to go for the guy who's got the steady hand rather than the one who's shaking saying, Lord, give me a steady hand. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's sort of... I, <laughs> You want to work this one through properly. So what does it mean to be a Christian lawyer? It's not saying brilliant lawyer. It is saying faithful lawyer. It is saying someone with integrity, someone who cares for people properly, someone who brings the values of the gospel to bear in terms of their occupation, irrespective of their gifting at the task. There are some non-Christians who are brilliant and are great lawyers. There are some Christians who practice law who aren't terribly clever, you know, and so they do a faithful job, but they're not brilliant. Or do you, do you get what I'm saying? Don't confuse the categories in a way that the Bible doesn't do it, because when you do that, you overvalue. You, it's actually a, it's a method of idolatry, attaching Christian to the thing, thing you want to do, or you want to be, or you want to believe. Christian, if it talks about integrity and character, absolutely. Christian in terms of association with the core thing of the profession and who I am is actually misplaced. Keep, keep working it through. Second point is this. Don't let your work interfere with your calling. Don't let your work interfere with your calling. Uh, work in our culture is dominant. It is in terms of the, the, the thinking about who you are and the thinking in terms of the, the hours that it dominates your existence. That's just the way our life ticks in Australia. Esteem, lifestyle, respect, all tied up with it. So keep work in perspective by making your calling central. Last week I had conversations with two people here after the meeting. And the two people both talked to me about the fact that gathering for church was so important, but shouldn't our emphasis be on enabling people to be faithful for Christ during the week in their work situations? Brilliant points to make, right? Absolutely brilliant. And I think that's the way in which we should exist. We meet together to encourage one another for faithfulness during the week. But not faithfulness uh, that excludes representing Christ to others in terms of the word of the Lord. Yes, integrity and work, but knowing that what you want to do is not just be good at your job, but be about the rapid spread of the word of the Lord in your work context and constantly thinking through, how does God help me do that? Now, I've been surrounded by brilliant people throughout my life who've done a great job of this. Uh, The first boss I had in a law firm sat me down one of the first days and said, he's Christian, he said, you've got to get your priorities right. Uh, God, uh, family, church, work. Handy thing for a boss to say to you. you And he modelled that in his life. I've seen other people who've had 
extraordinary opportunities for career advancement uh, that would have required them leaving substantial ministry things they're engaged in and relationships. And so they've put the promotion to one side and the money and the prestige associated with that to continue with the ministry things that they thought were more advantageous in terms of the spread of the word of the Lord. I know people who earn megabucks and live very simple lifestyles. There's a single guy I know in the city who is a very senior sort of engineer and who's made a point of limiting his lifestyle dramatically so he can give his money away to various ministry things that he does. What you want to make sure is that your calling is what dominates and you don't let your work interfere with that priority of the calling. Do you get the thrust of this passage and the heartbeat of it? The rapid spread of the word of the Lord as we wait for the return of Jesus. I read a story about Florence Chadwick, who was a long-distance swimmer back in the 1950s in America. In 1952, she set out to do a swim from Catalina Island to the coast of California, sort of an English Channel-type swim. And it was a really foggy day, and the water was very cold. She was in the water for 15 hours, got to within 400 metres of the beach, a destination, after 15 hours, but it was still incredibly foggy and really cold. And so she just begged and begged and begged to be dragged out of the water. She was interviewed afterwards and asked about how she felt about getting so close but not making it. And this, this is what she said. She said, I don't make any excuses, but I think if I could have seen the shore instead of only seeing 20 feet because of the fog, if I could have seen the shore, I might have kept going. And two months later, clear day, she swam it. Friends, when we think about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of heaven, the clearer you can see that, the clearer that that is riveted into your brain and into your heart, gives you clarity and sharpness when it comes to the values and the priorities you have in this world. Because the, the clarity with which you can perceive the future that God promises will immediately sift the things you think are important now. And when I get to heaven, Jesus is not going to say to me, Paul, great will, you know, what brilliant and clever drafting you have done in your legal profession. Okay? It, God will be concerned that I was faithful in that job. But he will, he will be most concerned that I remembered his promises and the return of his son And I laboured with that goal in mind according to the key things. What are we about as the people of God as we await the return of Jesus? It is the rapid spread of the gospel. Because in the end, that's what stands. That's what lasts. Let Let it sift us. Let it sift us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, this word written 2,000 years ago to people who are struggling with with some confusions we probably don't have. And yet, Father, we know that in its essence, 
It speaks to our situation, our church, our mind, our hearts. And Father, we ask that you will give us that sense of conviction and clarity about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the culmination of your promises, uh, the security we have because of the forgiveness and his resurrection, but the confidence we're not just abandoned here to do our own thing, but you actually have given us purpose as we wait, as we anticipate his return. And Father, give us passion and conviction about that, um, the courage uh, to be overtly yours in our work context. Help us to be faithful and full of integrity as we work and yet not esteem ourselves or others by virtue of what they do, but rather by what you've done for them. Father, give us uh, lips that speak, uh, hearts that are courageous, minds that are clear, so that we might faithfully serve you in your world as we wait for your son's return. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.